the gods of the internet have not been kind to us with this recording, so we do apologize for the slightly wobbly sound at the beginning of the podcast. We do still hope that you enjoy it and you don't hold it against us. Hello, this is Environews and I am your host, Jewel. Today, I am joined by Dr. Bernard Thalher, a lecturer and researcher in the field of glaciation. Glaciation is the formation of ice, not small ice like snow, but actually icebergs and ice sheets. And Bernhard's work focuses on climatic changes from our recent past of about a million years ago. He studies what happens to lands at the wake of glaciers, drawing data and information from erosion and flattened mountains. Hello, Bernhard, and welcome. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Bernhard, flattened mountains. This is something that we have never talked about on Environments before. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about climatic changes and glaciation, how they come together. Okay. Actually, we are living in a period of Earth's history we call ice house state. So in the last 2.5 million years and more intensively in the last 1 million years, glaciers frequently occupied especially the Northern Hemisphere, to a large extent. This frequent change from full glaciation to ice-free conditions dramatically changed any landscape, especially mountain regions. The reason for this is that the style of erosion, so the style of glaciers impose eroding on the topography is totally different from rivers. And so it always wobbles from one thing to the other. And it's always wobbles from glaciations, put the landscape in a total disequilibrium. And so the landscape get eroded. And even if the glaciers are gone, they are now trying to readapt to its former state. And that gives a push in erosion. And this erosion we can observe, we can see, and we can also see the dramatic changes glaciers does to the topography. Remember when you go in the mountain ranges, wherever you, in the high and mid-latitude mountain ranges, for example, in the Rocky Mountains or in the Alps, in the European Alps, or in the Himalayan mountains, or even in South America, in the, in the higher, higher mountain ranges, you will observe what glaciers does to the topography. They erode it, and they, they make these nice forms like peaks, like cirques, and all of that nice features. And they also do dramatic changes to the, uh, to the valley floors. They do dramatic overdeepening. So they really change the landscape dramatically. And how does this affect the climate change? You have mentioned a couple of things that are already very interesting. One is the balance, right? So there is no balance during a period of, of glaciation. So that's one thing that I think is it's a really, really important to maybe play a little bit more. But also, how does this affect the climate? Because I think what we have in mind when we're thinking of glaciations and, and sheets of ice and really cold weathers where we probably wouldn't survive is that everything is covered under the under these sheets of ice and there is no life that we can understand or that, or that we can preserve. And we don't know what this really means for the climate. We, I don't think that we actually make the connection. Okay, let's explain it uh, that way. I've mentioned before, we are living in an ice house state. And so um, from the big impact after Cretaceous period, where the dinosaurs died out, and from more or less this period of time, the Earth started to cool down. And they started to cool and to cool and to cool. And the reason for this 
is basically the, um, the Earth and how the Earth is positioned to the Sun, called Milankovitch cyclicity. And uh, but it's not the only reason. There are several other reasons for this uh, where uh, researchers are not very sure. So we are still not knowing exactly knowing why we are now in an isostate. state. Isostate means we have these glaciations, these frequent glaciations, interrupted by very warm interglacial periods where are there quite warm periods. And so that's the point. And what we do now is we totally get out of this normal warm periods in terms of climate change, if you mentioned that. We observed warm periods in the last million years, which did not show this kind of warming as we see it today. Mm -hmm. So the former periods of interglacial warm periods give us a reference frame, which is kind of normal. Okay. And we can see how we deviate from this normal state during our anthropogenic overprinting, mainly putting CO2 into the atmosphere. I see. So that's basically the link. So basically what you're saying is that between glaciation periods, we then have a warm period. And these periods of warmth are the baseline according to which we can then record. Right climatic change that we're experiencing right now right okay so that's totally right we have like imagine we have this big ice sheets still left like in greenland or antarctica and they give us a very very good view into the past one or a bit more million years no it's about one million year continuously to preserve basically a one million year record of ice and if you look closely into the ice if you investigate into the ice you can extract the bubbles and you can see the atmospheric gas at the time the ice were deposited uh, okay so you can really nicely see the co2 content over the last million years why only last million years because ice is moving and ice of course moves out to the ice and gets melted um on the on the edge of the ice sheet yeah 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 so the ice is continually disappearing. And so they're in the thickest parts of Antarctica or Greenland, especially Antarctica, it's even older. You have about 1 million year or close to 1 million year observation period. And during this period, you can see the CO2 content varying during glacial periods. And then it's get warmer during interglacial periods. We have to keep in mind that both full glacial conditions, so like we often see in the museums or in any journals or whatever, where we see ice age, we have to keep in mind that the full glacial period, so where the glaciers are really extending like south of New York, south of Berlin, London is fully covered by ice. Mm -hmm. This this period are quite short, really short, even uh, in in terms of one million year period. They're only like last probably only one uh, 10,000 years. And also this warm period, they only last about uh, 10,000 years around, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. Mm -hmm. And so normally we would now head right to a glacial period, but this glacial period, this full glacial period, I would say where the glaciers are big, really big. So we are normally the most time period in the last million years was like an intermediate state between like now and between full glacial periods. Yeah. <laughs> so that was an intermediate state. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we are now in a warm period and we can say our warm period, we can compare the CO2 content from the last warm periods we had before in the, during the quaternary period. So um, we can see the CO2 content and the CO2 content is very closely related to temperature. Yes. And we can see that the CO2 content over the last interglacial, several last interglacial, was only at a maximum 300 ppm around. Yes. And now 
We're already at 400. We are more than 400. That's, of course, an important that we, what we can say that it's normal, but it's not. And the CO2 content of 420, what does it mean? It means we, we have to go far back in Earth history, like to the so-called period of the Pliocene. Yeah. And the content of more than 400 ppm was uh, reached in the Earth around 3.5 million years ago. Yes. And so we can also, of course, see the dramatic difference to this Pliocene world at that time, which means the sea level is, of course, much higher. We had probably not even Greenland glaciated. We have large parts of the Antarctic ice shield not glaciated. Remember that uh, the Antarctica has about, let's say, 80 meters of sea level equivalent in the ice still preserved. Oh, wow. Greenland, not that much. 20 meters or not even. I'm not sure right now. But <laughs> still, remember, if you let the disappearing whole Greenland, which seems to be remember we we can now compare with the pliocene period probably the ice sheet in greenland was not existing during that period we are basically seeing all the glaciers melting yes can you explain a little bit to us the ignorant no no (laughs) (laughs) i always say that it's one of the things that i enjoy being an ignorant because there are so many things to learn but can you explain what is the message that we should be getting out of this because i'm not gonna lie i'm one of those people that every time i hear news about the Arctic and the Arctic sheets melting and and now about Antarctica, which I didn't expect, but there was a very recent publication that was talking about lakes in Antarctica where they weren't supposed to be like thousands of lakes where there used to be one or two. And I always wonder, like in, in lay terms for me, that that live in Europe and, you know, I, we have the hot summers and the cold winters, but nothing so extreme. I understand the temperature, but what does it mean for the climate? How does it affect the air that we breathe in, so to speak? Mm. Well, what you do to our Earth is for sure something unique. But we can, of course, say two things. The, the change. Yes. How we can compare to the, to the rate of change, which is very dramatic. And we can, of course, or we can try to compare to periods where something similar did happen. For example, we have a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. Of course, periods we have to compare there this, ha- this process happened naturally, like huge basalt fields appearing mm-hmm. and degassing produces a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. So we can compare to these periods and say what might happen to our Earth, to atmosphere. The point is twofold, I would say. First, we are overloading our atmosphere with CO2, which means global warming. And the second, if you do it too much, we kick in a cascade. We cannot really estimate how we end up. So we can, for example, if you compare to this older periods I was just mentioning before, Mm -hmm. too much CO2, too much warmth can in the future lead to unoxygenated oceans, for example, and can introduce mass dying of animals and destroying of ecosystems, for example, is can really kick a, a cascade of horrible things. So that is the one thing we do on the atmosphere. Yes. And the second thing, as we destroy the earth on, on other fields, basically, as we build and do plastic to the oceans and uh, all the other things humans do to the to the environment. Mm-hmm. It's the second thing which really affects our ecosystems. And if we destroy our ecosystems, especially those on the lower level, we lose our food, basically, our diversity. Diversity. I get it. 
going back to the balance that you mentioned early on, I was wondering, we have heard about the water cycle and we've also had a guest who has talked about this, the water cycle. And but we never really take into consideration how the ice sheets pertain into this cycle. We never really consider that. But now that you have mentioned the oxidation of the ocean and also the fact that and the numeric that you gave us that eight eighty meters, did you say eighty meters of Yeah, for Antarctica, yes. Yeah, of water mm-hmm. are what the, the ice sheets of Antarctica are worth. We've talked about the imbalance in the water cycle, which comes now with the first weather phenomena, for example, torrential rains where there weren't any, or prolonged droughts where, again, it was like a better cycle, now it isn't. But we have never considered ice as part of that cycle. But the way that you describe it with the warming of the planet, it's seems that ice will be part of that cycle in the sense that since more water will be produced and will run into the oceans, this will also be a factor to consider in the balance of water cycles. And I'm wondering, is there something historically that has happened that is similar that we can then compare to to what is happening today in terms of how far can we expect this situation to go? And that usually leads me to the why we should be taking climate action right now. Is there a a relatable time in the history of the earth where we can see how glaciation, the melting of the ice, has affected the sea levels to that extent that we can sort of compare it. You already mentioned a time where CO2 levels were over 400 ppm. I'm assuming that by back then there wasn't much ice left on, on that's that's right, yeah. Yeah. And then what did we learn from that period? What type of data and information do we have? Well, of course we had Ice ages, and we can observe also ice ages in the past. Think of the snowball earth. You may have heard about this period where you have the whole earth maybe has been covered by ice. So the whole earth was really widened, was snowballed. We uh, researchers are discussing about the intensity of this period. Mm-hmm. Later, there was also ice periods uh, which triggered on some way mass extinctions events. Mm-hmm. But the direct effects we can, of course, compare with uh, always the sea level changes, this aesthetic, we call it aesthetic sea level changes, mm-hmm. for example. So if you have ice, you have lower sea levels normally. And if you have no ice, you have a sea level, which is, is rising. And you can also see in the rock, basically in the rock record, you have several indications that we can see this sea level fluctuations over uh, many, many times. You know, ice comes, ice goes, ice comes and goes, and you see this, this yeah. fluctuations. So it's a very common thing. Of course, if you focus on the recent period, we have to keep in mind that this is something which is fast in, in geological uh, timescales, but it's not necessarily extremely fast in anthropogenic timescales. So mm-hmm. if we're talking about melting of the Greenland ice shield, we have the effects tens of or hundreds of years, but it's irreversible. You know what I mean? So we cannot yeah. make it back, basically. We cannot, or it, it, to make it back, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. It, it also takes even longer. So it, once we started and to start melting, that's what we can learn. The ice sheet is basically gone and we cannot do anything about yeah. it. So we can only observe it. We can only observe the melting and uh, see the sea level rise. And that's ex- extreme. Of course, it, it affects all the coast regions on the world. Can I ask you something? We were talking about about Santorini earlier and how some 
Santorini is the tip of a volcano, right? Yes, right. Can you observe the sea levels there? Because Mediterranean, we think of Mediterranean as a closed sea. So we kind of expect that these closed seas will be saved from the rising of the sea level. But do you think that you can observe these things? Malta is a very small island, for example. Do you think that we would observe things like that on islands? Yes, you, you can observe that on marine shore platforms, for example, which clearly show you sea level fluctuations. Yeah, you can observe that. But Santorini is a good example. So in Santorini, you can be rather happy to be safe because why? It's, it's a steep island. So you have a steep volcano. And so, of course, not all of the island, but so let's imagine like give it a 10 meter sea level rise. It doesn't affect it too much. But nice. think of Netherlands, for example, or think of the Brahmaputra Delta in Asia, where you have millions or hundreds of millions of people of living. That's dramatic. So the, the flat shore is a problem. So Greece, the hilly landscape of Greece or even volcano Greece, you can be rather happy. It's rather safe because a sea level fluctuations of um, sea level rise of several meters won't um, affect mm -hmm. that too much, I would say. Of course, it would also affect it, but you, you have the opportunity to go a little bit more land inwards and then you're safe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the flat coast, that are the problem. Yeah. Course. And I also wanted to ask, we have talked about warming of the planet, which melts the ice. But also, before we go ahead with the last question, I wanted to ask, what makes ice ages reappear? So what are those conditions? I'm thinking we are the factor that is releasing a lot of CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere right now. If we know the conditions under which glaciations and ice ages form, can we then reverse this anthropogenic climate warming so that we can start mm. going backwards toward a glaciation period? Which I'm not, I have to tell you, I'm not very happy, happy. to ask. <laughs> because I don't think it's a good scenario, but I'm thinking, you know, if we can go one way, can we also go the other way? Well, it's also a matter of time. You need to to have to to get energy to to get rid of the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that would also be uh, need a lot of energy. And uh, remember how long and how intensively we put um, CO2 in the atmosphere. So climate scenarios really, so climate modelers really see or expect that the next ice age, let's say, we would imagine happening during 40, 60,000 years from now. Uh -huh. will be not appearing. So basically, I mean, probably for our <laughs> for our world, it wouldn't be happy to see uh, the, the ice uh, covering everything or covering uh, much of our land. But this is now uh, not happening, probably very likely because of the CO2. So it's, it's difficult to say, you know, we're now living in a period and we're assuming this period as we see it today will last forever. That's our, our view. We think, okay, we, we cannot imagine what will be happening in 10,000 years. We are not used to... Uh, humans are normally not um, adapt to this form of thinking in the far future. But if we wouldn't put CO2 in the in the atmosphere, on the one hand, we would face it in, on the long-term run. It's go slowly and slow. It would be cooler and cooler normally. So if we would uh, have no anthropocentically um, which tends to get cooler over the next thousands and ten thousands of years to get then a peak glacial periods where you have really glaciers grow large and then abruptly get warm to an interglacial periods. Now we are doing exactly the opposite. We are not uh, facing a cooler climate in the geological future, but we are facing a um, very very warm, maybe too warm climate, and these changes uh, can be dramatically leading to mass extinctions. Let's see or at least to a period which is much, much warmer 
than today, uh, which some may say, okay, happening uh, for me, it's not bad if it's it's getting warmer, but think all the ecosystems and I think all of the, as I mentioned before, all the regions we are living in mm. on the coast regions, which are not available anymore. That's a really dramatic, dramatic changes. And these changes, you have always to keep that in mind. These changes are very, very dramatically fast. So they're much faster than we have observed in the earth, probably in the earth's history, not all, but most. So um, this... Yeah. Changes we impose, ecosystem cannot adapt to these changes. That's also the and also we can even not probably adapt nice to these changes. Yeah and absorb. Yes, that's the point. I agree. Very good points that you have raised there, Bernhard, and thank you for bringing them up. The way I usually think of climate change is I go from the equator and the tropical zones, and I kind of think that these tropical zones are extending and extending and extending to the temperate zone, and finally, and now that I think what we observe, and please tell me if I'm wrong, is that the temperate zone is going further up, into the Arctic zones, where it should be cold, and the tropical zone is extending into the temperate zones. We are already observing a lot of higher temperatures mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. above Africa. My first guest was a meteorologist, and he's a close friend, and he keeps telling me, we are going from really cold days to really hot days so quickly within, yeah. within spring, let's say, or winter or the summer, that this this isn't the normal season right. that we usually have. So I think that what we're observing is this extension of the warm and hot zones further and further up in the earth. And I think this is the thing that gets to me the most, that it's not just the displacement of species, because this isn't what we would observe, right? Not immediately. If I were a fisherman, I would observe it, yes, but I'm not a fisherman. I get my fish in the market. <laughs> but I think, I think what we would would be observing and i think we already are especially in china is the displacement of people mm. they have to move from areas that had water to areas mm -hmm. that now are deserts that's putting a lot of yeah. pressure on population moving the population around making sure that there is infrastructure there and generally the geographical space where we can actually say this is okay for the majority of the population to live is now becoming a narrower zone and i think this is how definitely yeah i recognize the climate and I'm sorry that it takes so long for other people to understand. Unfortunately, it does. Anyway, one last question. I would say this is a wrap up for our discussion. And thank you for everything that you've shared. But one last question is, can people in their everyday life see the effects of the melting ice or is there something they should be understanding that it is because of the lack of ice or the melting of the ice or the effect of glaciations not reforming that they can see maybe everywhere that they wouldn't realize is there something that we see that is because of the of the condition of the ice in our everyday life well the question is are you talking about really climate change or really talking about this i was talking about in the beginning from the full glacial conditions to non-glacial conditions. And of course, in that terms, you can also observe a lot during your everyday life. Also, the, the big glaciations we had on the Earth, they reshaped, as you introduced in the beginning, our Earth's 
dramatically. And so you can see all these effects also in our everyday life, for example. So mm-hmm. I mentioned before, glaciers are eroding faster than rivers. Glaciers do actually eroding faster than rivers. And glaciers redistribute a large amount of sediment from A to B, from the mountains to the ocean, for example. And if you live here in the Alps, you can see this in everyday life. Um, for example, you see the glaciers manage to excavate very deeply in the several hundred meters deeper than the river. And as the glaciers are gone, they leave lakes, for example, and these lakes get filled. And these flat lakes, which are filled, are perfect places to put settlements on or to exploit groundwater or to use the sediment of the filling of this lake for raw materials exploitation, for example. So that's something you see in your everyday life. Or for example, if you're in... Mm -hmm. In uh, New York, for example, and walk in the Hyde Park, you can see these big boulders there. These are also brought by glaciers. And if you go in the mountains hiking, you can see these very pronounced peaks or so-called horns. That's also a feature of glaciers. You see experience from glaciers or what uh, what glaciers left us. And of course, if you go on the um, on the shorter timescales, uh, the one thing you can observe, I'm not sure if you think about that, is um, of course, the fast retreating glaciers and what happens if you retreat glaciers from especially mountains regions or no- or northern regions. As soon as the glaciers are gone, the landscape, as I mentioned, get instable because they are now in a, getting into another state of erosion. So they get instable as the ice is gone. Landscapes get instable. And as you impose them again with this climate change, they are, tend to be even more instable. So if glaciers are gone, they produce a landscape which is very susceptible to other impacts, mm-hmm. let's say, like, for example, climate change. So if you have a already like very susceptible landscape and then you expose them to, to climate change, which brings permafrost melting in the, in the mountains or a strong um, precipitation changes, like heavy precipitation changes, which are increasing, we, are, we all know, for example, yes. uh, they will even dramatically change this landscape, which is already susceptible and produce for example, mass wasting processes like avalanches, rock avalanches, debris avalanches, and so on. That's something we, for example, really face in the European Alps, but probably also in other regions um, which have been recently glaciated. So that's a really yes. a nice effect which we can see from, from both. One, glaciers are gone, leaving susceptible landscape, and second, impose extreme climate, for example, on this rather susceptible landscape. Right. Can I ask you really quickly, and I thought I was... Sure. I was done with the questions, but I'm not. The more you talk, the more I want to ask. Susceptible landscapes because of the detrimental effect of the ice, because the ice breaks the rocks and right. and basically flattens the land. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's a good, a very important question, actually. The glaciers do both, and it's also not fully understand. It's really something basic part of my research. Because you, that's a good question, because glaciers do basically both. Though they increase relief, but also they flatten relief. Right. It depends on where you are on the glacier. So in the big valleys, for example, where you have these big glacier tongues, you may have seen an alpine, typical alpine-shaped valley. It makes a U-shaped form. It, you get really a U form and deeply excavate into the back rock and what happens then if you excavate deeply you start to increase basically the relief but in the higher regions they also flatten topography basically out they flatten the topography out they first they produce like horns and peaks but as the glaciation takes longer and longer these steep pronounced peaks also disappeared yeah. first they, they model these peaks the sharp ridges and peaks and as you impose a frequent glaciation and they will tend to disappear yes but 
this depends also a bit on uplift. And where you have not much relief, think about Scandinavia, think about the North American shield, then it also tends to, to really smooth the landscape. If you have like these big plateau glaciers, North America or North Europe, you will tend to have like also smoothing effects to make this landscape very smooth. Have you ever been into Scandinavia? You see not very pronounced forms in the landscapes. It's really as... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a flatter. Uh, yeah, like a smooth, yeah. Or Great Britain, of course, is also a good example with exceptions of some mountain regions. Yes, it's true. Like Ben Evois, for example, it's it's really flattened and you see the, the rounded forms of the rocks. That's really typical glaciers do. What about Siberia and Mongolia? Yeah, sure. Uh, Mongolian glaciers have never been to Mongolia. Why? It's, it's too dry there. Uh -huh. But Siberia, of course, is a very good example. It's really got flattened out. But, you, but landscape or mountain reaches can also escape this flattening. How can it escape? producing new rocks so strong uplift like in Himalaya uh, they're always producing no rock and the glaciers are competing basically with this flattening okay. for example yeah, yeah in regions where you don't have much mountain building processes uplift as you mentioned Siberia as I mentioned Northern Europe or US and Canada and there it gets flat flattened out yeah for example okay. yeah that's the effect so we basically can observe a glaciation impact but we can observe it only when we know what to look at or to look for or either yes definitely there's shorter mountains or lakes forming in basins where there weren't before i suppose yes definitely yeah definitely I would say if you go in the northern hemisphere and walk or hike there are many 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 traces on our everyday life where we can observe these either directly changes by glaciers directly by the um, by glacial erosion or by the effects of cooling, basically. For example, you erode more by glaciers and the rivers transport more mass and creates bigger flood plains, for example. This would be also an effect, for example. So you can you can see both, actually. But of course, all changes done by really glaciations, by glaciers, these erosion processes are very pronounced and, and very distinct things you can, you can see. Thank you very much. Everything that you've said today has been really good education for me. I hope for the people that follow the podcast as well. I think we have learned stuff today. I think we have learned about the importance of the ice and ice sheets, both for the atmosphere, but also for the formation of the land, which is something that doesn't immediately come to mind. Yeah. I think because when we think of ice, we think of, oh, melting of the ice, streams, lakes, rivers, more water available. So we are thinking of the good stuff, but we're not really thinking of the stuff that actually affects us without realizing that it does affect us. Yeah. So thank you very much. Thank you for coming. It, it was a pleasure for me. Thank you to inviting me. It was really nice to talk to you. Yeah. And I hope that we have a chance to talk more about this. Sure, definitely. I have promised that this is just the first series and I'm hoping that there will be a second one and hopefully we'll be very happy to attend very good great I hope we'll have you again thank you Envirenews podcast is produced by me Jewel. please subscribe and spread the word you can find me on twitter at jewel underscore crash underscore axe the music clip is Vitoro, provided by Blue Dot Session, under attribution license. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.